Good evening. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 5 if you wish to follow along uh, this evening. I'd like to begin with an illustration of the Pyramid of Egypt. I haven't been there, but the Great Pyramid of Giza is really one of the last standing monuments right, that was built of all of the ancient seven wonders of the world. I had to look them up again. I had forgotten all of the ancient wonders of the world. But travelers throughout the ancient world, they named some of these specific structures uh, wonders because they were built, some of them, with amazing and stunning human engineering. And that is a helpful kind of background introductory thought as we think about this construction, this covenant construction project from First Kings chapter 5. As we've studied the rise of Solomon to become king, and, he, and God told us early in First Kings that God had firmly established his kingdom, right? There were some rocky things in the beginning, but we noticed that Solomon's organization uh, several weeks ago, it didn't hurt the country. If anything, it brought about great enhancement, and the nation flourished through all of his wisdom. The organization was so wonderful, we read in chapter 4, the last time we studied this in verse 20, that the people of God were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. They were happy with Solomon as their king. And again, this is one of the climactic moments in Old Testament history. Another commentator noticed that that phrase found in 1 Kings 4.20, that sequence eating, drinking, and rejoicing, is typically associated with the, the activities in the central sanctuary, right, that is now in Jerusalem. And that is echoed from Deuteronomy 12.7, 12.18, and 14, and elsewhere. And the point that the author was making was was bringing it up for is to tell us that even before the construction was ever built, it's as if the whole land had become the court, the temple court of the Lord. Indeed, the land of Israel under God's blessing of Solomon's kingship, it had become a land flowing with milk and honey. You may remember at the end of chapter 4, I mentioned that there were several interesting and, and not coincidental connections between Solomon and who? Adam. And that, that, that seems to be intentional, for, and we'll talk more about that next time, but there, there are a lot of interesting connections between Solomon and Adam. Again, when you glance through chapter 5, it's not a long chapter, you may initially say to yourself, I wish I hadn't come tonight, because it reads like a giant Home Depot receipt, right? It's about lumber and stones, and you're thinking to yourself, I could have done something better with my time. And a couple of commentators, as I begin reading them, they, when a commentator says, you know, when he has to remind the audience, those he's writing to, that all, every word is inspired by God, sometimes that's a reason. This is a hard passage to kind of see, does it have any application to me today? Our first thought, and we have three this evening, about the planning of the temple The planning of the temple was wise. And all of these things, I think, are so obvious from not just this passage, but also one of the chapters that Eric read and the chapter right after that. Why was this the time to prepare to build? 
Why didn't David do it when he was king? And we will read some of the answers in a moment, but the first verse begins and it says in 1 Kings 5, 1, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram or Hiram always loved David. So part of the answer to this question, why is this the time to build the temple? Part of that answer is, is given to us when we begin to understand, well, who is this king named Hiram? Why is he mentioned here in First Kings? Why does he want to help Solomon? We know that he was a king, a ruler, right, on the Mediterranean coast. The capital was Tyre, a Phoenician port, and he ruled for over 30 years. He ruled part of David's final years of kingship, and then he ruled together with Solomon. He was a close ally. He was a friend of King David. When King David mostly defeated the Philistines in his day, he didn't completely defeat them, but he certainly subjugated them. The people of the region of Tyre, the Phoenician people, today we would call them the Lebanese people, they greatly benefited from David's victories over the Philistines. The people of Tyre dominated sea trade. And David began to dominate the involvement of land trade in Israel. And together, the the king of Tyre believed it was better to cooperate with David than get defeated by him. And so they, they entered into various covenants. In fact, before Solomon becomes king, Hiram has already been providing lumber and he built, right, the lumber, uh, he supplied it for David's palace. Remember, David felt guilty when he's living in a beautiful place and he says, God is living in a tent. And he wants to build God a house. In Hebrew, house and temple could be, it's the same word often. The context tells us which it is. And so the first verse is summarizing really ancient diplomatic protocol. Congratulations, you're the new king. And I was friends with your father and I want to stay friends with you. The same thing happens today, right? A president is elected in a different country, a prime minister. And our elected leader usually gets on the telephone and calls to with that person, hoping that things will go well in your administration. We hope for a peaceful transition and all of those things that we witness and hear about. Before David died, he engaged in a massive effort to help plan for the building of the temple. And initially, when I read this chapter and thinking about it early in the week, I'm thinking to myself, how on earth is this going to apply to us? Right, Because it seems at times so so distant in the past. And what is the connection to us? The last two chapters of Chronicles are really a moving and an inspirational account of David's incredible sacrifice, his personal sacrifice from his own wealth in giving abundantly for the cause of the temple, which he would never see built in his lifetime. He gave of his gold. He gave of his silver. There were all kinds of precious stones, marble, bronze, and iron, and all sorts of things that David, he did this publicly. David never saw this majestic temple that Solomon built, but he planned and dreamed of the day when God's promise would be fulfilled, and he knew through God's communication to him that Solomon was to be the one to build the temple. That's why now is the time. 
David was not allowed to build it even though he wanted to build it. And even though he couldn't build it, he provided vast quantities and he organized incredible planning before Solomon ever took the throne. And during that covenant construction project of planning, the people, all of the officials that were there that David called to hear him tell them what he was going to do, they responded to, they were inspired, and of their own free will and wholeheartedly, they too gave much of their wealth for the dedication and the offerings of the temple. And so Hiram and the envoy that he sent, these well-wishers, they came from this coastal city the capital of the Sidonians, a neighboring kingdom. And they wanted to give special greetings to Solomon, and they want to continue on friendly terms. They know that Solomon is a very powerful king. One author says, chapter 5 begins, Hiram, king of Solomon, we, we, right, of Tyre, right? he enjoyed good relations with David. And so he wants to continue this relationship with Solomon. Solomon sends back a reply that states his plans to build a temple. He asked for cedar and other kinds of wood. By the way, the Chronicles account tells us that Solomon, when he responded back to the congratulations, he said, I'm, I'm going to build not just a temple, I'm going to build a palace. He asked for all of the high-quality woods, not just, not just the cedar, but cypress and others. And Solomon is willing to continue these friendly terms, this arrangement with this Gentile king. It was mutually beneficial for both of these kingdoms. They both grew powerful after David had defeated, largely defeated, the Philistines. Hiram has made a wise decision, hasn't he? He wisely aligned himself with David, and now he is wisely aligning himself with Solomon. Again, this project of Solomon was really the greatest building project of his entire kingship. This is what made Solomon famous in many ways. 1 Kings 5 tells us how Solomon prepared to build a temple for God and more importantly, why he decided to build it. Again, if verse 1 appears to show the political connection between Hiram and Solomon, verses 2 through 6 in Solomon's reply offers a theological reason why Solomon was motivated to build the temple. In verse 2 we read, And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your your place, shall build the house for my name. That's why it's the perfect time to do it, isn't it? Because that's what God says. And Solomon, in the message back to Hiram, is giving a theological explanation. I am building this for my God. Hiram is already being exposed to the promises of God that were made to David. This house that he wants to build is none other than the temple. And we know that David wanted to build the house for the Lord, but the Lord prevented him. 
And we are given a reason. He was a man, a warrior. He was a man who shed much blood. But connected to that is that you don't build temples until you have rest from your enemies. That's not true just in the Bible. I think from creation onward, it's true in the ancient world. Hiram built a temple during this time too. All of the ancient kings of the world, they would conquer their enemies and then they would build temples. That's the pattern. Israel now has rest from her enemies. Isn't that the promise that was given to David initially in 2 Samuel chapter 7? It is now being realized in a far greater manner now that Solomon has become king. The result of all of David's victories, all of those battles fought during his kingship as his son now takes over and David died, those victories resulted in an incredible united Israel that was powerful, prosperous, and peaceful. The Lord had, verse 3, the Lord had indeed put Israel's enemies under the sole of his feet. Again, the language in verses 2 through 6 whatever diplomatic royal correspondence and how they wrote this, it's filled with a theological testimony to a Gentile ruler, right, that is connected to the promises that God gave to David about kingship. That is why it's time now to build the temple. Again, First Chronicles 28-29 provides some really interesting and encouraging things to read for us, what David did in his final years. And when I read those two chapters, I thought to myself, Chronicles presents David in what seems to be a different light than, than Samuel did. In Samuel, we see David, he looks like kind of a passive father, but in, in, in Chronicles, towards the end, David is like exerting all of his energy to make sure that he is raising as much money and funds as he can to build this great, magnificent palace. And he makes it very clear on the second anointing that Solomon is going to become king. When we began reading 1 Kings, it's like there's great confusion. Doesn't anybody know? And in that sense, Chronicles is very encouraging to read. Why did Solomon ask Gentiles to help? Some people have raised this objection saying, well, the Jewish people, the the Israelites are not supposed to enter into covenants with Gentiles, right? There are portions of the Old Testament that forbid God's people from entering into certain covenants and treaties with Gentiles. Verse 6 says, now therefore command, Solomon says, now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. And my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. It was not wrong for Solomon to enter into this particular, we call it a treaty, called a covenant. It wasn't wrong. Even though he was a Gentile, I think that's something that we can explain uh, why that was appropriate. Solomon, notice in this this verse, he offers to pay the people a fair wage. That has so much application, we could talk about that for the rest of the sermon. Solomon compliments these Lebanese lumberjacks. They knew how to cut tall trees, and they were known for skilled workmanship in lumber. And that's high-quality wood, isn't it? They were skilled, and Solomon compliments them. 
Do you remember what we read at the end of chapter 4 about Solomon's love of the nature that God has given throughout creation? His keen interest, and that's where wisdom leads us. We're interested not just in the Bible. We're interested in everything in creation. In 4.33, he spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls, from the giant trees to the little things that grow through the concrete walls. Lebanon was known for her stately and beautiful tall cedar trees. Scripture elsewhere acknowledges the splendor of such prized trees. Not only were these trees magnificent to behold, isn't it still on the national flag? And was known for the high quality for durable construction materials. Paul House says Solomon's response to Hiram continues the text's emphasis on God making the king wise. We, we saw that in chapter 3, chapter 4, and, and chapter 5. All of this is painting a portrait. In chapter 3, remember his, his judicial decision with the two mothers? A wise king. In chapter 4, his administration, his organizational skills, a wise king. And here in chapter 5, his political wisdom to negotiate international treaties, a wise king king. House goes on to say that any one of these single qualities with an average leader would be amazing, but Solomon has all of them. And once again, it just underscores God's faithfulness to this particular king at this moment in his life and in Israel's history. Davis says, here is a king who shows all the nations will, shows that all the nations will worship the true and the living God. Didn't Isaiah 56, we talked about this in Sunday school a few weeks ago, doesn't it talk about foreigners will come into the courts of the Lord? Isaiah says, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. Wasn't it always God's intention from the very beginning of the world for his temple to be a house of prayer for all nations? Our second thought is the temple planning was blessed. Incredibly blessed. How did King Hiram respond to this request for lumber? Verse 7, as soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, what? He rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. Here is a Gentile king excited about the Davidic king. And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct, and I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it, and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat. That is apparently 100,000 bushels for his household. And 110,000 gallons of pure olive oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. When I thought about Hiram's response to Solomon's kingship and even to this request, I thought to myself, Hiram responded to Solomon's reign with more enthusiasm, eagerness, and excitement than some 
Christians respond to King Jesus being king. Full cooperation. Now you notice that he seems to change uh, a little bit of the negotiation there, and that's an issue that commentators have noticed. Uh, I was really helped by Philip Graham Ryken's commentary. I mean, almost everything I've read by him has been very helpful uh, when, when we come to some of these texts, but he has some helpful thoughts for us to consider. He notices that some people accuse Solomon or even Hiram of changing the terms of this particular agreement. I mean, after all, the people from this right sea trading nation they're experts at sea transportation too. And he's offering that in addition. Solomon didn't ask for that. And he says, I'm going to do that for you. He insists on shipping the lumber all the way to Israel. And Riken says, if anything, Hiram was doing even more than Solomon asked. He was willing to supply Cyprus as well as cedar as the leader of a country that excelled in sale, and he was offering to arrange the terms of shipping. I mean, we think Amazon Prime is great. This is Lebanese Express. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? But going back to the idea of fair trade, and, and Riken spent some time briefly on that issue, and he says that w- when nations trade between nations, there should be fair trade agreements. When they're not fair trade agreements, it's not good even if you're dominating, right? He says, even amongst people in business, there should be fair trade agreements, even amidst individuals. And we know that there are a lot of American large corporations that pay their employees peanuts, and I don't like that. I'm thinking of someone that probably many of you know that is hired by a a big company all over America, not given full-time, has no benefits, and has no health insurance. I think those companies have some responsibility to take care of their employees. And we see more and more people struggling in their work in situations like that. And it doesn't seem like a fair trade practice. That's my complaint for the night. The response of Hiram is incredibly positive. It's a blessing for Solomon. Now, were these two guys equal partners? A lot of people will say yes. I don't think they were equal partners. I think Solomon is clearly the superior partner, and he is in control. And I think Solomon actually dismisses part of Hiram's negotiations and says, look, if I want to send people over to your, if I want to send my men over into your country, I'm going to do it. And that appears to be what Solomon did. How do we know that God was blessing Solomon here? Verse 12 says, the answer is because that's what verse 12 says. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty, a formal alliance, if you will. Again, this Gentile ruler has been exposed to the promises of God through Solomon's correspondence to him, right? This is why I'm building this, because our God is the living God. You're already probably getting the the idea that the greatest monument in all of world history, right, before the coming of Jesus was the temple. It's not the great pyramid of Egypt. This is the most important construction covenantal project before Jesus arrives on the scene. And Solomon is the one that gets the privilege of planning this. We're not even to the building stage yet. This is the planning stage. 
God is fulfilling his promise to Solomon in granting him wisdom according to the prayer he prayed at his coronation. Didn't Solomon ask for wisdom? Chronicle says that after that prayer, God highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him, bestowed upon him royal splendor such as no king over Israel ever had before. First Chronicles 29.25. God's word also tells us that God was pleased with Solomon's request for wisdom in addition to wisdom and making him the wisest king before coming of Jesus Christ. He gave him great wealth and great honor. There was never a king as wise as Solomon before him or after him. Chapter 3 indicates that, chapter 4 indicates that, and here in chapter 5, the planning process of the preparation for the building of the temple also illustrates this. Solomon is a wise king in this passage, and he is he's demonstrating his international or his foreign relation capabilities. The trade agreement between Solomon and Hiram resulted in Solomon's peaceful and powerful kingdom having even greater control beyond Israel's borders. As a result of God's blessing Solomon with wisdom to govern well, Solomon's fame begins to spread throughout the biblical world. And because of this, Solomon's building projects were blessed. The timing was perfect. And even Gentiles were confronted with the earthly reality of God blessing Solomon in his reign. Solomon agreed to the terms, right? He provided the, the, he provided the pay that was needed for the men to do all of this work. Thousands and thousands of men to do this. The psalmist says in connection to the trees of Lebanon, the trees of the Lord are, all, are well cared for. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. Riken picks up on that and says, those cedar trees always belong to God and how appropriate for a Gentile leader to order their cutting them down to be used to build the temple for the living God. It's a fulfillment in many ways. How appropriate for a Gentile king to give his cedar trees for the temple of God. Others believe this is the fulfillment of Psalm 68, verse 29. A biblical promise that kings would bear gifts to the temple of God in Jerusalem. Again, Psalm 69, uh, Psalm 69 is a wonderful Psalm 68 and 69. They both have some things to say about God as king and the Gentile kings will one day bring their treasures into the sanctuary of God. Praise be to God that this Lebanese king not only cooperated with Solomon, but some people believe he actually believed part of the promises of God. I don't know. I hope he believed in the gospel at that time that was revealed to him. He seems to praise God, doesn't he? The kings of the earth shall come and they will worship the Lord. Psalm 69 goes on to say that those who love war will be scattered. But then it says the envoys from Egypt and Cush will come submitting themselves to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. And last time we looked at that beautiful Psalm 72, the reign of Solomon that foreshadows one far greater than him, an eternal and majestic reign, one of Solomon and David's sons greater than both. It promises that the sun will reign from sea to sea and over every inch of our world, from the depth of the deepest sea to the height of the highest mountain and beyond. Gentiles and the kings of the earth will bow down and serve
And then our third thought, the temple planning was organized. Was this workforce unfair to God's people? That's a question that pops up at this point. Glancing at verses 13 through 18, there's no doubt in our minds that Solomon, as he worked with Hiram, had a very organized plan. This was a massive undertaking that involved thousands and thousands of people to do a lot of hard work. I'm going to raise this question here because some people are very critical of of what Solomon did to what they believe his own people. They said this is unfair. These are unfair working conditions. Verses 13 through 18 begin, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft number, 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried out the work, at the king's command they queried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gibald, Gibald did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the temple. Chronicles also tells us that when they actually laid those foundation stones, there were no sounds of hammer. It was silent because they were cut so perfect. I mean, this is skilled labor in the ancient world. We come to the end of chapter 5, and we have to admit that planning is often very important for organization, isn't it? I mean, you had a remodeling project here before I came. And then there was another one after I came, and I I realized that there are hundreds and hundreds of hours of planning behind the scenes that take place before anything happens inside the room, right? It's incredible amount of preparation. And that's what Solomon is doing. Did Solomon turn his own citizens into slave labor? When you read the parallel account in Chronicles, it seems to indicate that these are Canaanite people that he took and used as servants or as slaves to bring all of that timber to Jerusalem. We know that there were at least 150,000 Canaanites living in the land. That's what Chronicles tells us. Later in 1 Kings, the question of forced labor is going to get somebody killed, isn't it? It's going to become a terrible problem later, but right now, It looks as if God is blessing all of this. King Solomon, again, had the unique privilege of building a house for the living God, not a false God. There were all all kinds of those in the ancient world. But he was building a house for the living God. This is why the Old Testament temple is really far superior to any of what the so-called seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, there are a lot of impressive buildings in the world today, too, aren't there? Incredible design that that is thought and and put into it. You know, the the king's palace outside of Paris, you ever go to there, it's it's a stately place to visit. And the the surrounding grounds and the gardens, they are taken care of so well. It it is an incredibly beautiful place. Now, what Solomon was building was the most important building project in the world. It was covenant construction. Again, Second Chronicles offers other details 
of what Solomon said to Hiram. And he clearly says in Second Chronicles, uh, uh, this is chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, he tells Hiram, the temple I am going to build will be great. Why is that? Because our God is greater than all other gods. Amen? That's great, isn't it? But who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? Who then am I to build a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifice before him? Did you catch that, what Solomon says? Sometimes we can become overly critical of how Old Testament people thought about the temple. Solomon did not believe that the temple could contain God, right? He knew that it was a place that God chose to come and dwell with his people because that was his promise. What Solomon says here is essentially no different than what Paul says in Acts 17, verses 24 to 26. God does not, he's speaking to unbelievers there, right? Pagans. God does not live in temples made by human hands, but he did in the Old Testament, didn't he? He chose to do that, and that's incredible. Both Solomon and Paul know something. Paul obviously knows more because he lives after the coming of Jesus Christ. They both knew that the living God could not be contained in his fullness in a building. But the Old Testament saints understood that God did choose to dwell present in a localized manner, in a special manner with his people. How does this apply to us today in the last five minutes? I want to credit in my thinking, Philip Graham Riken, who helped sharpen me and really, I think, applied this in ways that are quite encouraging, ways that I didn't even think about when I was studying this text. And there are two big ones. The first one is this. When God told David no, David had to accept that fact, right? Do you think David was disappointed? David wanted to do something for God, and sometimes we want to do something for God, and God tells us no, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And God said, no, you can't. And David did not sulk and pout about it and say, I'm going home with all of my marbles. David responded with incredible enthusiasm. He did everything within his power. Chronicles demonstrates that. Everything he could do to make it easier for his son to build the temple. He amassed incredible wealth and building materials so that it would be closer in time when Solomon came. He handled his disappointment to God saying no in an incredible manner. And that applies to all of us today, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 1031, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That motivated David in his final days. That motivated Solomon. Solomon built us for the glory of God, and that should motivate us. Whether we are disappointed with God in our life right now, we can't do what we want to do in our service, whatever it is. We should still strive to do what God has given us to do for His glory. That is an application that is, that is very practical for all of our lives. And it's quite sad when Christians pull back and they withdraw from the church because they're disappointed, they disagree with something, or they couldn't get their own way. King David didn't do that even though he really, really wanted to build that house. Second, in studying this passage, we begin to see the connections between the construction project in the Old Testament and the greater temple 
construction project that we are all involved with is far greater than Solomon and anything he dreamed of. That connection, we believe, is with us today by the saving work of Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of His Spirit. Again, Riken was helpful for me in thinking about this. In Luke 11.31, we read that Jesus is greater than Solomon. As a boy, we, are, we were told that He loved His Father's house, referring to the temple. And yet during His public ministry, Jesus said something extraordinary, even prophetic about the temple. He said in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And people misunderstood. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. And John 2.21 clarifies, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. We haven't heard that before in the Old Testament, have we? Jesus Christ is God incarnate, and he is a greater temple than anything Solomon could ever build that the living God dwelt in. There are many spiritual, theological, and practical connections to, 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 for us to make between Solomon's temple and the bodily temple of Jesus Christ. But Solomon, in 1 Kings 5, he gathered certain materials, and we can stop and think about that. Those were durable materials, weren't they? I think what is so kind of mind-boggling initially when you start to think about the transition and the concept of temple is that Solomon used very durable, high-quality materials and when we come to the, the great work of Jesus Christ, it appears that the new, the new covenant temple is built out of inferior materials. It's, it, it's human flesh. It's kind of staggering. Jesus did not come to build a temple made of newer wood or greater stone. He took upon the weakness of human flesh in his body. We come to learn about the fullness of God's presence in Jesus And like Solomon's motive to honor God in building the temple, Jesus had a motivation greater than that regarding the temple of his body. He said to his father in Hebrews 10.5, A body you have prepared for me. And then later in verse 7, And I have come to do your will. And there on the cross, Jesus offered himself as the final sacrifice for sin. Because Jesus is the new temple, we learn in the New Testament that God is involved in a greater covenantal construction project that if you're a Christian, you're also wrapped up in this too. It is the greatest covenantal construction project in the history of the world, and we call it the church. It is an architectural wonder. It is a great wonder, the greatest wonder in all of world history, but it's not yet completed, is it? The process of covenant construction is still ongoing. God is building a spiritual temple. Paul says to Christians, we are the temple of the living God in 2 Corinthians 6.16. The king is no longer gathering timber from Lebanon or massive stones of rock from the hill countries of Israel. He is building a spiritual house. And each time a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ, a living stone, a precious stone is added. This is a marvelous and magnificent temple where the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The stones in this temple come from all over the world, from every tribe and every nation. God is building his great international house of prayer through the work of Jesus Christ. Riken says, despite the weakness of its materials, this new and living temple is built to last. Solomon's temple could be destroyed, but not this one. It is constructed on 
a precious cornerstone, Isaiah 28, 16, which Peter quotes. Jesus Christ is that solid foundation of the church. The Bible says that in him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 2. As living stones, we are the construction materials that God is using to build this new spiritual temple. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, you are the temple of God. You are the temple and God's Spirit dwells in you. The Old Testament temple was made of costly materials, but it was destroyed. It was torn down, wasn't it? But the new temple was indestructible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of God's grace to us in Christ, we are part of this divine covenant construction project that began in the coming of Christ. And it was planned long before David or Solomon were ever born. This was a divine plan from eternity past. Eric Alexander, in closing, was talking about this temple some time ago, and he says it's the most important thing God is doing in the world. He says everything in history is scaffolding for the building of this great temple. Aren't you thankful that God has placed us into this great construction, covenantal construction project because of Jesus Christ? Father in heaven, we thank you that in 1 Kings 5, you fulfilled your promise in helping Solomon prepare all the building materials to build that first permanent structure where you chose to dwell with your people. Lord, we know that Solomon knew that you were greater than that, as Paul did. Lord, we thank you that in sending Jesus Christ into this world, this greater temple reality has come in him, and also in all who are connected to him. And Lord, we are grateful that even though Solomon gathered materials year by year, It was built in a rather short period of time, but you have been building this greater temple for over 2,000 years. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to expand this new covenant temple, that people who do not not yet believe in your son, Jesus Christ, that they would be saved by your grace, that you would regenerate them. Lord, that living stones would be added to this holy temple that you are building. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to long for the day when your temple will cover the whole face of the earth. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful in our lives this week. Keep us mindful of what you're doing in our lives through Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.